Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports and today I'm gonna to walk you through the premium edition of our Natural Wine Club. Today the focus is going to be on uh, Bordeaux-based blends and Bordeaux grapes essentially. So, uh, but none of the wines are actually from Bordeaux, which is sort of the joke here, I suppose. Um, so Bordeaux is a region in France. Uh, it's located sort of just south of the Loire Valley, which is just south of um, uh, of Paris. So if, if you're thinking about it, it's, uh, you know, sort of, um, I guess, central western France. It's quite close to the coast. So we have a maritime climate here, meaning that uh, a lot of the climate is influenced by the ocean, in this case, the Atlantic Ocean. There's a river that sort of runs through the main uh, part of Bordeaux that, uh, again, helps regulate temperature, as well as a handful of other things. We won't get too into, uh, you know, into the geography of, uh, of Bordeaux, since none of our wines actually come from there today, but just to sort of put it in your head where, where this region is. Um, this region is famous for a lot of different reasons, one of them uh, being the grapes that actually come from this area, so the grapes that are indigenous to this area. Uh, when we think of what we call the international grape varieties, the varieties that are planted all around the world, not just in the place uh, from which they come, um, the Bordeaux grape varieties are the ones that are most widely planted. Cabernet Sauvignon, I believe, is the number one uh, red wine grape planted on earth at the moment, thanks to its popularity throughout the uh, you know 80s and 90s, and essentially everybody ripping out uh, super important indigenous grape varieties to plant uh, Cabernet Sauvignon instead in places like Italy and places like Croatia and places like, you know, literally anywhere you can plant grapes, um, you have Cabernet Sauvignon these days. Um, so Cabernet Sauvignon probably being the most identifiable uh, grape variety, if not on planet Earth, definitely the most identifiable grape variety uh, originally hailing from Bordeaux. Uh, the other main grape varieties that we have in this area, and there are actually quite a few, um, we'll talk about the red ones first. We have Merlot. Uh, Merlot, again, incredibly important grape variety, used to make up a significant portion of the plantings, um, you know, both in the Okanagan, which is what we're going to talk about a lot today, um, but it still makes up, you know, a dominant component of uh, what's actually planted in Bordeaux, as well as a handful of other places around the world. Uh, next up on our list of importance is Cabernet Franc. Uh, Cabernet Franc is one of my personal favorites. Um, we see it planted uh, a lot in the Loire Valley, uh, so just to the north of Bordeaux. Um, but you're also seeing it planted all around the world now, whether that be in New Zealand, where it does uh, an amazing job making delicious wines. Um, you're starting to see it more in Chile and Argentina, which are both making incredible wines from Cabernet Franc, um, as well as in uh, Oregon and Washington, and uh, in this case, uh, in the Okanagan as well. Again, it's incredibly useful. It's uh, a little more tolerant to the cold, um, retains a lot of freshness, um, all these characteristics that I absolutely love. So I'd say that those are the three sort of main red grape varieties, although there are a handful of other grape varieties that come from here as well, too. Um, you think of something like Malbec. Malbec is actually uh, most likely indigenous uh, to Bordeaux, although some people make the argument for uh, a little bit further south in places like Caor, um, or even places that are maybe a little bit further uh, inland from where Bordeaux is. Uh, again, there's still a lot of debate to be had, but uh, again, a significant number of people believe the 
origin of Malbec to actually come from Bordeaux. Uh, a lot of people think that it comes from Argentina, um, but it moved over to Argentina, uh, you know, well over a hundred years ago. And even though it's it became less popular in France, it really took off in Argentina for its dark fruit flavors. Um, it's, it's real intensity. It's very vivid. Uh, it's a great variety that I really love that I think has a has a bad reputation amongst sommeliers, but uh, an overly glorified reputation amongst consumers. So <laughs> hopefully it'll meet in the middle sometime and, and be a little more reasonable. Um, and then you also have grape varieties that aren't really planted in this region to a to great extent anymore, things like Carmenere. Uh, Carmenere is not quite as cold tolerant as the other grape varieties, meaning that after a, a handful of really sort of nasty vintages in Bordeaux, uh, it essentially was mostly grubbed up or died um, because of poor performance. Um, and uh, and so you really only find Carmenere in large components in uh, in Chile, um, where it makes again incredibly interesting wines. I think that there's a lot of work to be done with that grape variety and figuring out how to um, optimize it for all drinking styles, as opposed to just in sort of the bombastic, sort of herbaceous, um, over the top. Uh, you know, versions that we, we tend to have from Chile. Um, but there's a small amount of it planted in a handful of countries around the world, including uh, in uh, the Okanagan and actually in one of our wineries vineyards um, at, uh, at Echo Bay. They actually have a small amount of Carmenere planted. Um, the last sort of major grape variety that we'll talk about is Putsi Verdot, um, although there are a handful of other red grape varieties that are sneaking their way uh, in there and some traditional grape varieties that are very interesting. Um, but Putsi Verdot is uh, a grape variety that uh, is often grown in very small uh, amounts and um, often adds tannin and intensity. There are some producers around the world, uh, for instance, in Australia, where they've had a lot of success actually bottling Pizzi Verdot on its own. Uh, I've been lucky enough to taste the uh, a single bottling of Pizzi Verdot, uh, or I guess, sorry, a single barrel of Pizzi Verdot um, from, um, oh goodness, now I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but a producer in the Okanagan that decided that they were, uh, they were pretty excited about their Pizzi Verdot. Um, Painted Rock Winery is the name of it. Uh, and tasting through their Petit Verdot, I was really, really impressed. I honestly think that it's it's maybe one of the great varieties that's best suited to their site, which is kind of ironic because it tends to be the latest ripening. Um, and again, it has these sort of unruly tannins in its youth, but I think in the right site, it, it really adds something. In classic Bordeaux, it was always used to add a little more structure, um, especially on Merlot-dominant wines that can be quite soft and quite supple. Uh, you know, adding a little bit of Petit Verdot in there, you know, gives it some strength, some power, some backbone. So there's a handful of, uh, again, really important grape varieties coming from Bordeaux that we have planted all around the world. Again, most of these grape varieties grew up in um this uh, this coastal climate that is quite cool during the winter, quite moderate during the summer. It does get quite hot there. It can definitely reach, you know, sort of mid to high 30s. Um, they often have to fight off things like humidity, again, being right next to a river and, uh, you know, not being far from the ocean. Humidity can be a factor. So these grape varieties are all quite resistant to rot compared to certain other grape varieties. Pinot Noir being a great example of a grape variety that's not nearly as resistant to uh 
you know, the humid climate. Uh, and all these grape varieties tend to need sort of a moderate amount of time to ripen. Um, Merlot and Cabernet Franc tend to be ripe uh, a little bit earlier in the season versus Cabernet Sauvignon, and in particular, Petit Verdot and Carmenere tend to be ripe quite a bit later in the season. Um, but that being said, they're not ripening quite as late as some of the more Mediterranean grape varieties. So you can plant them in a wide variety of climates, but ideally you're planting them in sort of a moderate climate, somewhere that's not too cold. Uh, you know, they wouldn't thrive in, in places like Champagne, for instance, um, but they also don't do particularly well in really hot climates, places like Sicily, for instance. Uh, although there is plenty of all these great varieties planted in Sicily, I just think that the wines that are made from them are, uh, you know, less than interesting if we're being incredibly generous. Um, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to do two uh, Bordeaux-based blends, and in one case, one single variety wine, um, uh, sort of side by side, so you can get an idea on uh, for why these grape varieties are what they are and why they're often blended with one another and how they taste on their own and sort of just do a deep dive into, uh, you know, traditional Bordeaux grape varieties. Um, our last wine is going to be a white wine, so we'll talk quickly about white wine grape varieties in Bordeaux once we get to that. Uh, but for the time being, let's jump into our, uh, our actual wines here. So first up, we have Daydreamer. Um, this is made by our really good friend Marcus, uh, him and his wife Rachel, and uh, their three hilarious baby doll sheep uh, are living in Naramata. Um, they're living right above the town of Naramata, which is in the Okanagan, um, essentially right on the lake. Uh, technically speaking, they're actually not that far away from Penticton, um, nor are they far away from uh, Kelowna, um, but essentially you have to drive uh, all the way around the lake from Kelowna to actually get to it. So it ends up being quite a long haul to actually get to the winery, even though it's not that far away. Um, Marcus is, uh, is an MW, meaning he's a master of wine, which is an uh, incredibly hard designation to get. There's only a, you know, a couple hundred people in the world that have ever successfully passed the exam over the course of the last you know, 50 years. Uh, so for us to have somebody who's a master of wine in our, uh, in our portfolio and not only that, but working in a wine region so close to us, it's really sensational to, to see the quality level and, and especially coming from somebody who has such a diverse palate. Um, he's originally from Australia and has sort of consulted, uh, around the world and, and done a handful of different projects. Um, but one of the things that we often talk about with the Okanagan and its uh, failure to sort of <laughs> reach a quality level that is, is, you know, globally considered to be amazing, uh, one of the reasons for this is that a lot of the locals, uh, a lot of the people who are making wine there haven't tasted, you know, around the world. They haven't tried a lot of the best examples. Um, they haven't visited these wine regions. And so that's where I think uh, where I think Marcus has a significant advantage is the fact that he does have this repertoire of, you know, thousands and thousands of benchmark wines from around the world in his head that he can either, um, maybe not strive to recreate, but definitely take inspiration from and understanding sort of what the upper limits of complexity and drinkability and, uh, preciseness and transparency, 
you know, what the upper limits of these things actually look like. Um, so I think he has a, a pretty amazing advantage uh, from that perspective. So although he is in um, in Naramata, the fruit for this wine actually comes from a Soyuz, so way further south. Um, a Soyuz, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Okanagan, uh, is a lot warmer region than we would see up in the north near Kelowna. Uh, you know, we're talking about hundreds of kilometers between these two areas. Um, and because of that, uh, again, you're going to get different, uh, different temperatures, different amounts of rain, different amounts of sunshine uh, based on where you are in the valley, all these sort of things. So he's located in a Soyuz, so again, think warmer climate. Uh, this particular wine is a blend of Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon in decreasing order of importance. So essentially what we're going to do is compare this wine with the next wine, which is made exclusively from Merlot and grown, you know, not too far away. Um, and it's a really good sort of side-by-side -side to, again, maybe understand these grape varieties and, and see the differences and see what the, the hallmarks are of these particular grape varieties. Um, here we have pretty traditional uh, winemaking techniques. You have destemming of the grapes, so the grapes are uh, taken off the stems. Um, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon tend to have uh, what we call pyrazines. Uh, pyrazines uh, can have sort of green herbaceous qualities to them, uh, especially when the grapes are a little less ripe. Um, and so in order to prevent that from going to an extreme degree, uh, usually these grape varieties are destemmed versus something like Syrah that doesn't have that, um, that green quality you know, built into the variety. We tend to see a lot more producers actually use the stems. Same thing with Gamay Noir, same thing with Pinot Noir. You'll, you'll see more stem inclusion for those grape varieties versus with Merlot and Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, Stem inclusion would essentially uh, exacerbate uh, the herbaceous qualities that those grapes already have. Um, for, I don't know, for everybody's interest, I guess, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is actually the offspring of two different uh, Bordeaux grape varieties, uh, being Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, so you can kind of see the family resemblance between a lot of these grapes. Again, since they were they were brought up in the same place over the course of hundreds of years, uh, it's no wonder that the uh, the family tree is a little bit uh, intertwined and messy. Um, so after fermentation for ten days on the skins but without the stems, um, this wine is pressed off, uh, and then um, Marcus is using a combination of new and neutral barrels. And this is going to be one of the few wine clubs where we're actually going to experience oakiness in the wines. Uh, a lot of the wines that we import do not have any new oak. Uh, the difference between new oak and old oak is the amount of flavor that they have. With new oak barrels, it's like using a, you know, a fresh tea bag for the first time. It's super intense, super flavorful. And then as you use it, you, know, you top up your, your drink with a little more hot water, a little more hot water, it eventually becomes neutral. You can't get any more flavor out of it. And that's essentially the same with, uh, with oak barrels over the course of you know, four, five, six, you know, in some cases, dozens uh, of uses, it's going to lose all of its flavor. So in order to sort of balance the amount of oak flavor you're getting in the wine versus the amount of grape flavor you're getting in the wine, because 
I think a lot of us are mostly interested in getting the flavor from the actual grape themselves, especially since the grapes are actually coming from the Okanagan versus the barrels themselves are coming from France. Um, we want as much influence to be coming from the grapes as possible, but oak does add this interesting complexity. Um, it adds a lot of vanilla uh, because of the way that it's aged. It can be uh, quite um, softening on the wines. Uh, it allows micro amounts of oxygen into the wine, uh, which makes it end up being a lot softer, uh, depending on, you know, depending on what you're doing at least. And so, you know, balancing oak flavor and the influence of oxygen, these are all things that pro winemakers, uh, you know, maybe couldn't do in their sleep, but it's definitely something that they strive towards and they're always thinking about. Um, so yeah, again, this being partially a new oak, uh, partially an older oak, the new oak is going to impart more flavor. The old oak is essentially just going to be a vessel that will allow the wine to evolve slowly. Uh, after 18 months, the wine is bottled um, with minimal sulfur, uh, unfined and unfiltered, same way that you know, most of the wines that we work with are made. The only major difference is going to be that oak influence. We're sitting at 13.5% alcohol here, so this is definitely not a slouch. Uh, it's got some serious body to it, some richness. For me, Merlot always tends to have this chocolatey quality to it. Um, maybe not like, uh, you know, candy bar chocolate, but definitely dark chocolate, cocoa nib, things like that. Um, and again, as mentioned, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, they tend to all have a herbaceousness to it. When the grapes are fully ripe, you don't notice it quite as much, but it, oh, it's always there in the background to a greater or lesser degree. Um, and it can show in a lot of different ways. Really bad Cabernet Sauvignon, for instance, especially from maybe the cooler regions of Bordeaux or where they, it's been farmed less well, um, or from, you know, sort of cheaper producers in Washington, for instance, uh, it can tend to have a quality that smells like green peppers or like jalapenos, um, which is, a, again, a little less inviting uh, versus I find wines like this that are more on the ripe end of the spectrum and have been properly farmed. Uh, you're getting a lot more things like sage, you're getting hops, you're getting uh, again, sort of different herbal elements to it that I find a little more uh, appropriate given the fruit character. Um, as far as pairings go, red wines that have a lot of body are actually a lot harder to pair than most people think. A lot of people use um, red wines in places that they, they shouldn't go necessarily. Um, but for me, again, despite the fact that it's it's quite warm out now and, and quite beautiful, uh, you know, recording this in the sunshine for once as opposed to under a veil of snow, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'm still thinking braised meats with this. Uh, you know, things like stews, um, things like your richer styles of steak. Uh, that's kind of the direction that I'm going to with this. Uh, I could definitely hang, uh, you know, hang around with some char as well too. So definitely don't feel afraid of bar barbecuing something to go with this. Um, but yeah, that's our introduction to uh, Jasper uh, is the name of the wine by Daydreamer. Um, all of Marcus's sort of top wines are named after his children, which is both very adorable and very appropriate as well, too. When I taste this wine, I definitely get some uh, some Jasper vibes if we're going to personify wines. Um, the next wine we have is coming from a slightly different region within the Okanagan. Uh, so this is coming from Echo Bay, uh, our good friend Kelsey. 
Um, so the first one we had, again, coming from Soyuz, so deep in the south of the Okanagan, versus this is coming from right around Okanagan Falls, just north of Okanagan Falls, in fact, on Skaha Lake. Um, so this is essentially right on the lake. Uh, so you're going to get way different characteristics than what you're getting from uh, down in Soyuz. A um, little bit cooler climate up here, so I find that you're able to let the grapes sit on the vine for longer without sacrificing acidity. Uh, one of the things that happens in warmer climates is that the grapes start losing acidity as they ripen quite quickly uh, versus in cooler climates, the grapes will hang on to their acidity for a lot longer, allowing you to sort of push the, the levels of ripeness to uh, sort of another level. Um, this wine is incredibly rare. Uh, the first wine we received, you know, over 300 bottles of, which is probably the biggest production, uh, or, you know, biggest allocation of anything we've gotten that we've used in the, in the premium wine club. That's not to say that it's large production. He's still only making a couple hundred cases of it. It just so happens that we're, you know, essentially his only export market. Uh, and so therefore, you know, we get, uh, we get a disproportionate amount of their wines. Versus the Echo Bay Cab Franc, which we're going to taste next, we only got 30 bottles into Alberta. So essentially just enough for our natural wine club, uh, and then maybe a couple bottles hitting the shelves here and there. Uh, so Echo Bay Vineyard is um, essentially kind of in this gully. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting topography here. It sort of slopes towards the lake. Uh, it's essentially facing west. Uh, and so you get lots of really nice sunshine here, um, and you're getting, uh, again, things like drainage. It's on quite a steep slope, actually, compared to a lot of the, the vineyards in the Okanagan. I know a lot of the ones that people drive through seem to be on steep slopes, but those actually make up a really small amount of the actual grapes that end up in most of the wines. Most of the wines are or most of the grapes are planted on flatland in uh, areas that are sort of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, it's all sort of a theme park. Everything's like a little bit fake, uh, <laughs> you know, to give you the, this feeling of specialness in the Okanagan. But this is actually genuinely planted on fairly steep slopes. Um, the soils in the Okanagan are uh, are quite varied from place to place depending on where you're looking but one of the sort of overarching themes is uh, glacial silt um, so essentially these uh, sort of silty soils that are caused by glaciers kind of coming into the valley and out of the valley and into the valley and out of the valley over the course of you know tens of thousands of years uh, and it sort of breaks down the rock uh, in this case um, if you look at the vineyards that are higher up above where the glacier would have been uh, most recently, you get granite, like big chunks of granite. Uh, that being said, there are other um, soil types kicking around the valley as well too, but those are some that you can sort of expect to see here. This wine is made from 100% Cabernet Franc. So their flagship wine, which is called Synoptic, is, uh, is a blend of all the Bordeaux grapes, um, so all the ones that we talked about earlier, and then in certain vintages, it actually also features a very, very tiny amount of Sangiovese. Um, they wanted to do an ode to, uh, to, I guess, some of the Italian wines that have been, uh, you know, we, we call them super Tuscan, so wines that are coming from Tuscany, but often made from international grape varieties, um, although sometimes in some cases they're... Um, 
blended with Sangiovese or in certain special cases are 100% Sangiovese, but they wanted to do sort of an ode to that. So uh, some cases there's a little bit of Sangiovese in there versus this, uh, basically Kelsey uh, tasted through each of the barrels that would normally get blended together. So the Merlot, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Franc, et cetera. Um, and she was like, wow, these taste so good on their own it would be a shame to, to blend them away because you get a lot of the, you can kind of see different things about the vineyards, see different characters um, in each of these grapes. And so they bottled a really small amount of each of the uh, grapes that they work with on its own this year, which is, again, quite special. It's really cool that we actually got some of it. To get back to winemaking just for a quick second here, uh, just to sort of give you an idea of how this wine is made, it's made in the exact same way as the last wine that we had, uh, the Jasper from Daydreamer. Um, so the Cabernet Franc is destemmed, again, for the same reason. It tends to pick up uh, an overtly herbaceous quality if you're fermenting with the stems. Um, and so in this case, uh, destemmed, uh, fermented in a tank for a period of time, and then pressed off into barrel. Um, it's spending almost the same amount of time in barrel and almost the same percentage of new oak. So in this case, 40% new oak, uh, and then the rest being sort of older barrels. Uh, again, same ideology, unfined and unfiltered, just a small amount of sulfur, in this case, 30 parts per million. So well within uh, sort of the natural wine uh, ideology, I suppose. Um, Cabernet Franc is, is, you know, historically one of my favorite grape varieties. I love the Loire Valley and I love uh, the areas in Bordeaux that focus on Cabernet Franc. And I think that Kelsey has done just an absolutely outstanding job with this of making something that's so intense and, and powerful and, uh, you know, elegant and regal and, and all these sort of things that I just uh, really adore um, while still maintaining freshness and drinkability uh, all in the same bottle. So to get to our last wine here, we're going to talk about the white grapes of Bordeaux. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is probably the uh, most recognizable grape variety planted in Bordeaux for white grapes. Um, it's most often planted in uh, Entre-de-Mer, which is sort of where two rivers come together. The area between those two rivers um, is, uh, is essentially this almost like quasi island that's planted with, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, it, Sauvignon Blanc is sort of underrated, uh, amongst sommeliers, uh, in my opinion, the same way that we were talking about with Malbec earlier. I think a lot of sommeliers, uh, are sort of over Sauvignon Blanc. They've been sort of annoyed with, uh, with how, I don't know, popular it got, especially thanks to certain big brands like Kim Crawford and, uh, you know, Cloudy Bay and all those sort of, uh, all those sort of brands coming out of New Zealand and, uh, just sort of the homogenous style that Sauvignon Blanc, you know, sort of all of a sudden started seeing. And then you have classic regions like Sancerre that are quite famous for Sauvignon Blanc. And the wines there are often expensive and under-deliver for what they are. They sort of rest on their laurels from an Appalachian perspective. And so it's uh, it's exciting to see producers sort of, you know, take up Sauvignon Blanc and do something a little more exciting with it. So Sauvignon Blanc, uh, again, one of the parent grapes of Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, again, definitely contributed uh, to some of its genetics. Who knows how much? Um 
but it's a flavor profile that I really liked. The other great varieties that we often see are Semillon. Uh, Semillon is often blended with Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc tends to, um, depending on who you're talking to, provide uh, some of the aromatic intensity, um, add uh, you know some of the acidity, things like that, versus Semillon tends to add this softness, this sort of gentleness, this lanolin quality. Um, Semillon for me is one of the underrated grapes of the world. We have a small amount of it planted in the Okanagan. It's always, again, very interesting to me. It's, it's, a, it's an exciting grape variety. Sometimes you have it planted on the other side of the world in places like Australia, and they make an entirely different style of it that's really low alcohol, very neutral in its youth, but develops into this wine of incredible complexity after 10 or 20 years aging in the bottle. So Semillon is definitely worth seeking. Um, it is also one of the main components of Sauternes, often blended with Sauvignon Blanc to make these lusciously sweet wines that are affected by noble rot. Um, so in, in basically because of the uh, where Sauternes is located, it's where two rivers are sort of coming together. You have mixing of cool and warm water, which creates this fog every day, which creates the perfect uh, sort of situation for uh, a very even layer of, of delicate mold to show up on the grapes, which ends up concentrating their flavors, but without actually causing, you know, full-on rot. Uh, and this is because of the warm, dry afternoons. And so Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon are sort of partners forever. Uh, you have a handful of other grape varieties in this area, though. Uh, Muscadel being sort of one of the main ones, which is super aromatic, very floral. Um, you have things like Merlot Blanc, uh, which are a little less uh, a little less seen, as well as again a handful of other local indigenous grape varieties. All of which I find very uh, very fascinating, and would love to drink more wines made from them. Um, there's a producer I've had my eye on for a long time that makes. Uh, make some wine from, you know, Sauvignon Gris and uh, a handful of other cool local varieties. So maybe one day we'll see that on the market. Uh, this particular wine is coming from California and in particular from Mendocino County. So sort of uh, northern California or at least north of Napa, if you're trying to get a, an idea of the, the sort of layout. Um, so we have two main vineyards here. We have Venturi Vineyard, um, this is one of my favorite sites in California. The Zinfandel that they sometimes make from this vineyard uh, is just absolutely stunning. Uh, super old vines here. Uh, these are vines planted in the 40s. Uh, so, you know, we're getting pretty old there, getting up to, you know, 70 years old at this point. Um, uh, these are dry farm vines, meaning that they don't water them versus the other vines that we were talking about in the Okanagan, see a little bit of watering. Basically, the Okanagan is a desert, uh, and so you sort of require at least a little bit of irrigation to sort of get yourself through, uh, depending on the vintage, I suppose, but essentially pretty much everybody is irrigating in the Okanagan. Not irrigating results in very low yields and in a place where it costs $300,000 an acre, uh, for unplanted land, you can kind of have to, you know, fudge the numbers a little bit and watering definitely helps boost your yields and makes uh, things a little more, uh, you know, economically sustainable. Um, so it's mostly coming from that vineyard, but um, uh, from Venturi Vineyard, but uh, some of it is also coming from Upton Vineyard, which 
again, I don't know how they got so lucky to find two vineyards with such old Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Sauvignon Blanc vines so close to one another. Uh, it's absolutely astonishing. And then farmed to, a, you know, to an amazing uh, level. So these are 60-year-old vines um, located in uh, Pinole Series uh, soils, um, some of the most sought-after soils in the region, uh, sort of the perfect combination of nutrient availability, water drainage, workability, all these sort of things. Like it's sort of uh, right in the middle of, of everything that you would sort of want. Um, this is uh, made in uh, an incredibly classic way as well, too. You know, we've really stuck to the classics this month. Uh, don't worry, we will get freaky in the near future here. But uh, after last month, you know, pouring two different bottles of bubbles, I figured, uh, you know, we keep it pretty classic here so everybody can restock their cellar for, you know, when the in-laws come over or whatever it happens to be. Um, so these are just whole clusters of grapes directly pressed. So they put grapes with stems still on directly into a press. Uh, they crush the grapes, the juice runs out, and then that juice goes um, into a tank where the that juice settles. So any of the solids that sort of made it through, uh, those will sink to the bottom overnight, essentially. Um, and then they're, uh, they're racking that, so taking all the clean juice, uh, so all the juice without the sediment, putting that into, uh, into tank, and then doing fermentation in tank. Um, they bottle it with minimal SO2, so... Uh, very little sulfur in this wine, um, and it's bottled a little bit reductive, meaning that it definitely likes uh, likes to be decanted or even open for a couple days to really start showing itself. Um, because of that reduction, I find that this wine is is, or at least I assume that this wine is going to age quite gracefully. Um, you know, I wouldn't be shy, despite the the inexpensiveness of this wine, um, I wouldn't be shy of uh, of aging it for you know, sort of five, five years-ish, somewhere in that sort of neighborhood. Um, and to give you a little background on the actual winery, because I don't even feel like I mentioned it yet, uh, we're talking about Populus. Um, uh, Populus is sort of a sub-brand of Les Lunes, uh, which is made by a handful of friends of ours, uh, Diego and Chant, uh, who are both doing really, really amazing things. They're mostly into farming. Uh, so, uh, what goes into their Les Lunes label is often grapes that they're farming themselves. Uh, again, they don't really own the vineyards, but they're going in and, and managing all the farming practices. Um, so using biodynamic techniques and regenerative agriculture and, and uh, you know, all practices that we uh, sort of aspire to. And uh, Populous is basically their sub-brand where they're uh, buying really good grapes from producers that they look up to producers who have either taught them farming or that they get inspiration from. And so in this case, uh, Larry Venturi, uh, is, is definitely one of their inspirations at Venturi Vineyard. And then to have access to, um, Upton Vineyard's, uh, uh, fruit in the Redwood Valley is definitely a super treat. Um, Sauvignon Blanc for me is all about that herbaceous character, uh, really renowned for having, again, a grassy, hoppy quality to it. Um, lots of green fruit like guava and green apple. Uh, it's definitely a style that I love. This is not going to be as sort of ostentatious as versions from, um, from New Zealand. Uh, the New Zealand ones are fermented at very cold temperatures with uh, selected GMO yeast to essentially... 
again, get these, these really outlandish flavors versus this is all wild fermented, which tends to create a more um, sort of diverse and, and centered flavor palette uh, in Sauvignon Blanc, or at least for me. And not only that, but this is harvested at an appropriate level of ripeness. Um, a lot of Sauvignon Blanc is harvested really early to preserve that herbaceousness, and then people will add sugar in order to artificially incre uh, increase the alcohol so it feels a little nicer on the palate. Versus this, they actually allow the grapes to ripen fully, um, which means that they lose some of their more sort of overtly uh, herbaceous characteristics and trade them in for more sort of ripe stone fruit characteristics, which I think we'd, we'd all agree is maybe a little more appealing depending on the context. Uh, so yeah, this is an absolute favorite for me. Um, for pairings, I included a bunch of really awesome uh, places to go for Bon Mi in Calgary. But if anybody has any suggestions on, on places to go in uh, Edmonton or Lethbridge, or uh, again, our, our wine club is making it uh, you know far and wide these days. Uh, so if anybody has suggestions for Bon Mi places near wherever they happen to live, we'd love to hear about them. Uh, I think I'll probably cut it off there. I feel like I've been rambling for, uh, you know, almost 40 minutes now. Um, but if anybody has any additional questions or has things they'd like us to cover in future episodes, feel free to send me an email. Uh, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. We'd also love to hear from you on Instagram. We're just at juiceimports. Uh, either way, we always love hearing what you think of the wines and what you think we should include in future clubs and just any of your thoughts and concerns. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with you next month. Cheers.